Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Early in the morning on November 17, 1926, Michigan State law enforcement prepared for a raid. Officers hurriedly grabbed their axes, guns, and flashlights. It was going to be a quick strike. It was still dark. The officers saw their breath fog as they strode silently across the vast grounds of the Israelite House of David commune in Benton Harbor. Their suspect, 65-year-old Benjamin Purnell, had been on the run for over three and a half years. He now faced federal charges on a slew of sexual allegations. The officers approached the Diamond House, a roughly 9,000-square-foot, three-story stone mansion where they had heard Benjamin was living. They quietly made their way up the steps to the entrance. They paused for just a moment, then broke down the ornate front door and stormed the house. Inside, they found a confusing labyrinth of hallways and rooms, moving walls, rooms within rooms, and large walk-in vaults. They swung their axes with abandon, chopping through the doors and walls to hasten their pace. The officers eventually made their way to the top floor and burst through Benjamin's bedroom door. They'd expected to find the young girls that Benjamin allegedly kept near him. Instead, they found the predator who'd been missing for so many years. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just stream Cults for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we took a deep dive into the House of David and its founder, Benjamin Purnell. We explored his early life and how he started to gain a following by claiming he was the final prophet of God. Armed with this new destiny, he and his wife moved their following to Benton Harbor, Michigan. This week, we'll investigate the twisted secrets Purnell kept hidden deep within his paradise and how those same secrets eventually brought him down. By 1910, 49-year-old Benjamin Purnell had aggressively recruited people from all over the world to join his commune in Benton Harbor, Michigan. He'd gathered several hundred followers to the compound he now called the Israelite House of David. Benjamin, an apocalyptic preacher from Kentucky, preached that he was the seventh messenger of God who was sent to reunite the lost tribes of Israel, 144,000 select people who would gather and wait for the second coming of Christ. He told the so-called select that he was sinless, immortal, and was meant to lead the Israelites in 1,000 years of peace following the end of the world. He taught everyone that they too could have life everlasting if they followed him and were sinless. However, there were a few stipulations to gaining eternal life. If anyone wanted to join the elect, they were forced to give all of their earthly possessions to Benjamin and the church. Once they joined, they had to abide by very strict rules. Benjamin demanded that they abstain from drinking, smoking, eating meat, and having sex. The men of the colony were also required to let their hair grow long, based on a single verse in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. While this behavior may seem a bit extreme, people who join a cult often do so because they feel the group helps them find meaning. Professor Daniel Peterson said in an interview with Voice of America, The people who join cults don't know if they have a purpose and what that purpose would be, and a cult offers very decisive answers so that they know their place in the universe and their place in society. Because of the promises of meaning and eternal life, many people were drawn to the Israelite House of David, despite the strict rules. While the House of David was strict in some regards, they were also seemingly progressive for their time. In 1908, they gave women the same right to vote as the men in the group. While the gesture was largely symbolic, since Benjamin always had final say, it took 12 more years for women in the United States to be granted their own voting rights. In fact, some of Benjamin's closest advisors were women, and his wife Mary had a large hand in shaping the House of David. She was seen by many in the local media as the driving force behind the group's rapid expansion. The compound's steady growth was a result of Benjamin and Mary's shrewd business sense. Every year they bought additional tracts of land, and eventually the House of David swelled to well over 1,000 acres in size. It was land that had previously been used for farming, 
but Benjamin and Mary had other ideas. The House of David invested in several local businesses in the town of Benton Harbor. They owned a logging camp to the north of town and bought a three-story hotel downtown. However, they became most known for their tourist attractions. As the commune grew, people from the local community began poking around the House of David. Instead of shutting these curious tourists out of the colony, Benjamin welcomed them in and decided to build them accommodations. In a few short years, they built an entire amusement park known as Eden Springs. The park was full of attractions, like a carousel and a prized miniature railroad ride. Eden Springs was a huge success and made plenty of money for the House of David. It was also the source of countless memories for families from all over the region. Benjamin was putting on a good show. He wanted the colony to feel like a friendly and beneficial place for all. The House of David's message was available to those who searched for it, but Benjamin made sure that the commune and the amusement park felt like separate entities to those who might not have been interested in his religious teachings. To add to this effect, Benjamin was rarely seen around the compound when guests were present. If Benjamin had to be seen, he made his presence known. He was a large man, standing over six feet tall and weighing 200 pounds. He wore a bright white suit, a large golden necklace, and a huge diamond ring. He played the part of the showman, not the cult leader. However, things weren't all perfect for the House of David. In 1910, Benjamin faced a lawsuit from a former member, Philip Klum. Klum said he joined the House of David because Benjamin had convinced him of a coming apocalypse. Klum gave Benjamin the deed to his house and a patch of land valued at nearly $2,500, nearly $65,000 today. But when the foretold day of the apocalypse came and went, Klum realized he had been swindled. In the lawsuit, Klum declared Benjamin a religious fraud and demanded his property be returned to him. The House of David had deep pockets and access to high-priced lawyers. Benjamin quickly settled out of court to protect the commune's image. With this legal hurdle behind them, the colony's greatest success was still to come. In 1910, the House of David built a 3,000-seat baseball stadium. It was a large space to host events for the community, but most importantly, it could also be rented out. The baseball stadium was home to countless games for local workplace teams. It was also host to local events, such as car shows and group meetups. Most notably, it was the venue for several illegal boxing matches. Benjamin was not beyond skirting the law to make a quick buck. Eventually, Benjamin used the success of the field to create a baseball team of his own. He had walked around the colony and seen a few of the men playing ball. They were quick and athletic, and Benjamin thought that they looked quite skilled. Benjamin also believed that since they were abstinent, a baseball team would be a good outlet to release their pent-up energy. So in 1913, 52-year-old Benjamin formed the House of David baseball team. The team consisted exclusively of his disciples, and in 1913, they were a sight to behold. At a time when every professional baseball player was required to be clean-shaven, each man on Benjamin's team had a large beard and waist-long hair. They joined a local county league and primarily played other semi-professional teams or workplace teams. 
Though they weren't professionals, as the years went on, word of their talent began to spread. Each season, the team's following grew, just like Benjamin's House of David. Eventually, people from nearby towns in Illinois, Michigan, and Indiana all drove to Benton Harbor to see the House of David play ball. By 1915, the team reached new heights. They were in contention to win the county championship. Games were sold out, and the team became an immense source of pride for the community. They may have looked different than any other ballplayers, but they were also better than most. During the 1916 season, the House of David baseball team was crowned the Berrien County Champions. It was a moment of great joy for Benjamin and his followers. They were local media darlings, but the jubilation didn't last long. Benjamin, who had worked hard to separate his private and public life, was about to see them clash. In 1916, Benjamin was dealing with the aftermath of another legal battle. A young woman named Augusta Fortney came forward to accuse Benjamin of something truly sinister. Up next, we'll hear about the allegations against Benjamin and how, despite them, the House of David continued to grow. Now, back to the story. By 1916, the House of David in Benton Harbor, Michigan, was exceeding its leaders' wildest expectations. 54-year-old apocalyptic preacher Benjamin Purnell had seen his colony grow rapidly over the past decade. His amusement park earned his church thousands of dollars, and his baseball team had won the local county league championship. To those on the outside, the House of David looked strange but idyllic, a near-perfect colony for those who were extremely religious. Yet all of this was a facade, and behind closed doors, much darker things were happening. Former members had started speaking out against Benjamin's enforcement of the colony's restrictive way of life. But Augusta Fortney's accusations in 1914 were perhaps the most damning. She ran away from the colony and went to any local paper that would listen to her story. She claimed she and many other women had been forced into a marriage with other members. Instead of sitting idly by, the commune hit back. Benjamin's son, Coy, published statements in a Chicago newspaper that accused Augusta of being nothing more than a liar and schemer who was only looking for some of the colony's vast sums of money. Instead of quietly going away, in November of 1915, Augusta filed a $25,000 lawsuit against the House of David. In the suit, she claimed damages against Coy and the House of David for slander and defamation of character. The House of David had been sued several times before. Their high-powered lawyers had either easily won or quickly settled all of their cases. To the House of David, this case seemed to be more of the same. But that all changed when Augusta took the stand to lay out damning new allegations. It went way beyond complaints of defamation and forced marriage. Speaking to the jury, Augusta said that Benjamin had taken advantage of her and countless other young women at the House of David. She claimed he had continuously brought her to his room at Shiloh to talk. Allegedly, Benjamin saw the girls as the purest people at the colony and strived to keep them that way. Through tears, she recounted the details as best she could. 
He had convinced her and many other women at the colony to have sex with him under the guise of a religious ritual known as blood cleansing. At the time, no paper printed the sordid details of what the ritual included, but it might have involved the women's menstruation. It's not uncommon for people from extreme religious sects to commit acts of violence in the name of faith. The people that perpetrate these acts diffuse their actions by claiming that what they're doing is the will of their God. These acts of violence can find their way into practices that some consider to be purification rituals. According to Kenneth Pargament, a psychologist at Bowling Green State University, since people define the sacred according to their own belief systems, they can sometimes violate, intentionally or unintentionally, the sacred space of others. Augusta said that because Benjamin was her leader and she believed that he was the seventh messenger of God, she had to abide by what he commanded of her. She said this practice began after she started going through puberty and she hadn't known any better at the time. Augusta also claimed that Benjamin forced her and other women into marriages with older men in the colony. The presumed intent was that the older men would keep their new young wives from speaking out about Benjamin's abuses. Coy and the lawyers from the House of David adamantly denied her claims and even countersued her for defamation and slander. When the decision finally went to the jury in November of 1915, the judge reminded them that this was a defamation case based on what Coy Purnell had posted in a local paper. He did not want them to make a judgment based on their opinions of the House of David itself or of their leader, Benjamin. The jury deliberated for eight hours. When they returned, they declared Augusta the victor, but it was a hollow victory. She was only awarded a grand total of six cents as recompense for the defamation of her character. Despite the meager payout, the case was a scar on the colony's public perception, and Augusta's allegations of sexual abuse opened up a new avenue for local media to attack Benjamin. But this blow to his reputation did little to deter Benjamin from spreading his message. In 1916, after winning the county championship, Benjamin sent his baseball team out to travel the country. The baseball team garnered a reputation as an intrepid barnstorming team as they crisscrossed all over the Midwest. They could play anywhere because there were always plenty of teams from all different types of semi-professional leagues ready for a contest. They also played against black teams who were confined within their own league. At the time, Major League Baseball was still segregated, and it would be 31 long years before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Playing against black teams was a move by Benjamin that also helped to generate headlines and brought out large crowds to each game. And the baseball team did the best they could to live up to expectations. They came into towns with a circus-like atmosphere. They had their own custom bus and even had a House of David brass band to entertain the crowds. A favorite amongst fans was the warm-up game of Pepper that the House of David was credited with creating. It helped the House of David players display their quick glove work, and they did their best to make it entertaining. In Pepper, fielders stand a short distance from the batter. The fielders toss the ball to the batter, who then lightly hits ground balls. The players performed tricks where they appeared to throw the ball to the batter, but instead it came out from behind their backs or from inside their beard. The amazing sleight of hand routine wowed audiences before the game was even played. 
some of the ball club's players even attracted interest from major league teams. One of their players, Paul Mooney, was so good that he was offered a contract by the Chicago Cubs. However, he refused their offer because they wanted him to cut his hair. By the 1920s, the team was well known all over the eastern half of the United States. As time passed, going to see them play became a yearly tradition for families from small towns all over the country. Everywhere they went, they were a sensation. But money and fun weren't their only goals. They also handed out recruiting brochures and pamphlets for the House of David. Benjamin found many new recruits on the road. Most of the people susceptible to Benjamin's message were good-hearted people. They wanted to serve a higher power and wanted to be hands-on with what they saw as an important matter, the end times. Thanks to these recruitment efforts, the House of David now had over 1,000 members living at the Benton Harbor Colony. By 1921, they had enough money to begin construction on another mansion called Diamond House. When Diamond House was completed, it became the new residence for Benjamin and his wife Mary, along with some of their closest followers. However, along with all of their successes and growth, more dark secrets started to emerge. In 1923, two sisters, Gladys and Ruth, filed joint lawsuits totaling $200,000 against Benjamin and sought damages for abuse they said they faced at his hands. They echoed some of Augusta Fortney's claims. 20-year-old Gladys and 18-year-old Ruth first came to the colony from Australia with their parents in 1904. They both had been raised to believe that Benjamin was the seventh messenger of God and a holy prophet. Gladys gave her harrowing account of what had happened to her and her sister to a packed courtroom. She alleged that when she was only 11 and her sister was 9, they were given to a woman named Mary Ranger and forced to live in Shiloh, Benjamin's private residence on the commune. Ranger was a close confidant of both Benjamin and Mary. Gladys alleged that Ranger was there to keep a watchful eye not only on them, but 26 other young girls. They only received a small amount of rations each day. They were also made to read an hour a day from Benjamin's teachings. If they were good, Ranger sent them to see Benjamin. As a reward, they were permitted to be in Benjamin's large oak-paneled parlor while he read out loud to them from the newspaper. Gladys said the girls were only willing to go because they hoped to be rewarded with treats such as ice cream. They were starving and looking for anything more than their rations to satisfy their hunger. While they were in his parlor, she said that he would often lay his hands on her. After she turned 13, Benjamin began taking more interest in Gladys. One night while Benjamin was reading to her, he asked her to come back to his bedroom. She was nervous and politely refused his advances. The request made her uncomfortable. She quickly left and went back to her room. She alleged that Ranger heard about her refusal the next day and became furious. Gladys said that Ranger grabbed her by the arm and marched her to Benjamin's room. She knocked on Benjamin's door and opened it. Inside, Benjamin was in front of an easel oil painting. Gladys said that once she was gently pushed into the room, the door was closed and locked behind her. She was left trapped and alone. That night, Benjamin sexually assaulted her. Gladys returned to her room the next morning and cried herself to sleep. 
Benjamin told Gladys that he was performing a religious ritual he called blood cleansing. She claimed he told her that what he was doing was meant to keep her pure. She told the court that he instructed her to never tell anyone what he had done to her. Mary Ranger told Gladys that what she had experienced with Benjamin was a privilege that not many in the colony were privy to. Gladys said that this went on for years before she was married off to another man in the colony. Her younger sister, Ruth, also testified that she was assaulted. She was forced to endure the blood cleansing when she was only 10. The House of David and their lawyer adamantly denied the allegations. Just as they had done years before when Augusta Fortney came forward, they filed a countersuit alleging defamation and slander. The case was immediately another media sensation, and the judge placed a capius on Benjamin for him to appear in court. Gladys and Ruth's deposition also triggered a federal investigation into Benton Harbor and Shiloh. It eventually culminated in a grand jury investigation in Detroit. While that investigation was only just beginning, the sister's civil trial dragged on for months. Benjamin never appeared in court. A month after the trial started, and after Gladys and her sister had been cross-examined, a local reporter went to the House of David, looking for the embattled leader. The reporter talked with a member of the colony who said that Benjamin wasn't there and hadn't been seen since the start of the trial. The local sheriff was notified and started searching for him. By October of 1923, the grand jury had issued three warrants for Benjamin's arrest on federal charges of sexual abuse and religious fraud. Authorities intensified their search, looking all over the country, but they still couldn't find him. Benjamin had vanished. Up next, the continuing search for Benjamin and the outcome of the court case. Now, back to the story. By 1926, the leader of the House of David, 65-year-old Benjamin Purnell, was still missing after fleeing from charges of abuse. Local authorities had looked all over the country and state of Michigan, but were unable to find him. While the search was being conducted, the civil suit against Benjamin progressed. The women's lawyers made it public knowledge that Benjamin had spent time in another commune years before, where similar allegations were made. The leader of that group, a man named Michael Mills, had been a mentor to Benjamin and had been sent to prison on charges stemming from similar blood-cleansing practices. The defense dug in their heels and had the girls' parents testify against them. Gladys and Ruth's parents were still devout followers of Benjamin and protected their leader by saying that their daughters had made everything up. Mary Ranger, who the women alleged had been their caregiver, claimed she had never left the girls alone with Benjamin. But the case was truly spinning its wheels without the seventh messenger in the courthouse. Benjamin's absence wasn't only felt in the courtroom, it was also felt in the colony. Since he was now out of the public eye, the colony was being managed by Mary, his wife, with input from a board of directors led by Benjamin's lawyer. The allegations against Benjamin were black eyes for the House of David and his disappearance was damning in the court of public opinion. However, there was a disconnect between the House of David religion and its entertainment ventures. In spite of the controversy, the baseball team was thriving. The team was only on the field to play baseball, and their fun-loving spirit sustained their popularity with people all over the country. 
In the summer of 1926, Eden Springs, the colony's amusement park, had their single largest day ever. In that one day, they sold over 9,000 tickets for the miniature train alone. And all of this success directly funded Benjamin's legal defense. But the glow from these successes didn't extend to Benjamin or the House of David as a whole. Later that same summer, the federal government asked for a dissolution of the cult. If granted, the colony would be put into a conservatorship, which meant that a third party would be placed in charge of its assets. And the courts continued to hunt for Benjamin, hoping to force him into facing his day of reckoning. Finally, state authorities caught a break midway through November of 1926. Another girl, Bessie Woodward, came forward. Not only did she accuse Benjamin of similar nefarious deeds, but she had some very useful information. She knew where he was hiding. Bessie led authorities to the one place they had long since crossed off, the House of David Commune. In the early morning hours of November 16, 1926, state authorities raided the colony. They found Benjamin lying on his bed inside the large Diamond House mansion. When they entered the room, the man they were looking for had radically changed. The once large 200-pound man was found looking old, frail, and thin. Benjamin put up no resistance. The end was approaching, and he knew it. The authorities discovered that he had come up with a complex system of hiding in plain sight. There were false walls within Diamond House, and tunnels ran beneath it, connecting it with other buildings at the colony. That morning, Benjamin was hauled into jail and processed. When his bail was issued, the court stipulated that Benjamin had to face the federal charges involving Bessie before the other civil cases. However, this wouldn't be a normal case held in front of a jury. Instead, it would be heard exclusively in front of Circuit Court Judge Lewis Fed, who was given sole authority to make a ruling. Benjamin's lawyers were furious that the case wasn't being heard in front of a jury. On top of that, when Benjamin finally entered the courtroom, he was confined to a hospital bed. He suffered from tuberculosis, was too weak to stand, and was unable to answer his accusers. With Benjamin infirm, his defense lawyers did the best they could. They used stall tactics to drag out the proceedings for another year, but the wheels of justice turned. On December 2, 1927, Judge Fed handed down a decision. He didn't convict Benjamin of sexual abuse. There wasn't any physical evidence. And just as many defended him as had accused him. However, Fed had heard enough to be dubious about the Benton Harbor compound. He ordered Benjamin and his wife exiled from the House of David. He said they were religious frauds and gave them 30 days to pack up their things and leave. Benjamin was near death when the ruling was handed out. His lawyer quickly filed an appeal and he was allowed to stay at the colony. There he lived in the quiet comfort of Diamond House. On December 16, 1927, a week Benjamin Purnell took his last breaths. His wife, Mary Purnell, refused to be by his side. She wanted everyone to remain a true believer in his word, so she couldn't be associated with death, since this meant he was of sin. She positioned herself to take over for Benjamin. 
His followers left his body where it lay. They were still convinced that Benjamin, the seventh messenger of God, the one to gather up the twelve tribes of Israel, was coming back. He had taught that he was immortal, and it was hard for them to accept his passing. They were allowed to leave his decomposing body in his room for three days before an undertaker had to come and retrieve the body. His followers were devastated, but never truly gave up hope. Some have claimed Benjamin's body was embalmed and taken back to Diamond House, where it sits in a glass coffin. In the years after his death, the colony faced a period of great turmoil. A power struggle ensued between Benjamin's wife, Mary, and his lawyer and the head of the board. By 1930, the group split their assets in two, and Mary formed a new group called Mary's City of David. Mary still had control of the baseball team, and they continued to blossom. On Christmas 1930, the team played their first night game, one of the first instances in U.S. history that a baseball game was held under the lights. Over the years, the team grew and eventually had three different traveling teams. They even played major league teams during spring training. They continued playing against black teams and even played with the famous Satchel Paige. At one point, the team also added a woman to their roster, Jackie Mitchell, who became one of the first women to pitch in baseball. The team continued for over two decades after Benjamin died and never lost its panache for theatrics. They once even played a game while riding donkeys to the cheers of a raucous crowd. But in 1953, Mary died. She gave all of her property to the remaining few followers. The beloved baseball team played their last game in 1954. Eden Springs closed down in the 1970s after attendance dwindled. The number of members at both the House of David and Mary's City of David slowly declined. Neither leader came back from the dead. With the heyday of each group long behind them, there are only a handful of old members in each community that continue Benjamin's legacy to this day. Interestingly, none of the members who are currently alive were born yet when Benjamin roamed the grounds of the House of David or when he was accused of abuse. Instead, what lingers most are the memories of Eden Springs and the famous long-haired baseball team. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Cults for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.